Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Cassenham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, I talk with Javier Marthi, founder at Divirod. Water has become a major topic of conversation that will continue to grow over the coming years, and whether it's droughts, flooding, agriculture, or even water accumulation around homes, monitoring water is becoming an increasingly important thing that we need to understand, because we need to understand where our water goes. Divirod's providing the solution for this in a way that increases the accessibility to data and is helping communities around the world. So let's dive into the conversation with Javier. Thank you for being a part of this. I'm happy we're able to finally chat because I know we've had some busy schedules back and forth being able to find a time. So thanks for taking the time to hop in. You're very welcome. So I'd love to start with, you know, diving in a little bit about your history and kind of where you're originally from and, you know, what's what's your background? You know, who who is Javier Marthi? So I am originally from Spain. I was born and raised in the south of Spain. Spain is part of the Europe, but Europe has a lot of differences from north to south. So sometimes I feel I was more closer to, much closer to Africa than to Finland uh, for obvious reasons. So living in the South of all my life until the age of 25, when then I started working internationally and I haven't stopped since. What was your first international job? So I was recruited by the European Space Agency. So I went to live in the Netherlands and I had a contract for one year, uh, which uh, was extended and extended and the end was like 16 years in the Netherlands. The Netherlands is very small, so no matter where you live, you're center. So I lived in between uh, The Hague and Amsterdam in a little town called uh, Leiden, uh, which is a university town, very lively, beautiful, lots of canals. I got the privilege of owning one of the uh, beautiful Dutch houses along the canal. So my house was built in the 1620 which uh, gives you an idea of uh, the sort of history that there, there was in my house at the time. What an incredible place to live. I, I have family that lives in the Netherlands and I just, I've always wanted to go there. Um, I've always been fascinated with, you know, having, having a house on that canal. What, what was that like from, I guess, like coming from South of Spain, being more in like in a desert environment, what was it like moving to an area that was a little bit more green? It had water flowing. What was that like for you? Well, it's a, it's a big contrast, and um, not only in terms of the uh, environment and the climate. Spain is very sunny. Uh, it's not that desertic, but it's, uh, it's, less, it's certainly more desertic compared to the uh, northern European countries. And uh, the Netherlands is a, is a beautiful place. I mean, it's so nicely organized. There's a lot of people living there. Uh, so there's a cultural shock from... Um, you know, the amount of people, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the countries which is more super populated in the world. I mean, it's not at the level of Bangladesh or, or India, but it's, uh, it's certainly the density of people is very, very large and very high. And for me, living in the Netherlands was, uh, was essentially a, 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 big, uh, a big experience because, um, you know, it rains a lot. There's a lot of water, as you say, there, there are canals, canals that uh, sometimes they freeze in the evenings, they freeze in the winters, and then you can even skate from them. So enjoying the water activities like skating on canals and lakes, uh, going out in the boat in the summer, um, having water very close to you at all times felt very, very good. Have you always been kind of a water person? Definitely. I used to be a ski instructor back in Spain when I was uh, in college. 
and uh, I enjoy the presence of snow in the winter. Privileged place in Granada in the south that uh, you have uh, the mountains at uh, 45 minutes away and then you drive south and then you are at the beach in one hour. So in the month of April, you go out there and um, just ski in the morning until the, uh, you know, you get the slushy, uh, mushy snow, uh, spring snow, and then you just decide, okay, let's take the car, let's go down to the beach, you know, long days. And, and then it's funny because everybody gets tan, you know, from here up. And then from here down, you look like a match, like <laughs> very, very tan face and very pale skin and the rest. That's super cool. Wow. What a, what a unique opportunity to be able to experience both of those in literally the same day. It almost reminds me of that Top Gear episode they did a long time ago where, you know, he went to the mountains and the beach all in one day. They did a little bit more extravagantly, but what a cool experience. And so what what did you study in, in school and what was kind of your expertise? I mean, you, you mentioned getting this job in the Netherlands, but what was kind of your inspiration behind that? What was your interest? So I was... Uh... Since I was a, a little kid, I was intrigued by space and I wanted to be a common astronaut. And um, so I studied engineering uh, in, in college. I got my degree in telecommunications engineering. I did a major in radio frequencies, so all antennas, telecommunications and, and radio and waves and et cetera. And that brought me to, uh, you know, one day I was uh, attending a presentation from somebody who came to, to talk to the, uh, to, the, to the university and explained what they were doing and calibrating a satellite that was passing by very close to our college. And at the end of the talk, I was like, I got to talk to this guy. So I just went straight up to him and say, hey, I want to work in space. What do I have to do? The guy looked at me and said, okay, well, why don't you write a letter to this person. So he gave me a name and an address and there I go in the typewriter, clack, 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 type in the, the letter. A month after I get a letter back saying, hey, here's a program that you can apply. I was like, oh my gosh, this is happening. So again, typewriter, clack, 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 getting all the references, all the paperwork. And um, a month and a half later, I was uh, offered a possibility to work in space and uh, went there for the first time. And uh, as a, you know, as an internship, it was the coolest experience of my life. And I came back and started working as, as a full-time employee in the, um, in, what was that, 1994, five? I don't even remember. That's bad. So what is it about, what is it about space that fascinated you? Um, is it the expansiveness? Is it the fact that you kind of get like this almost top-down view of Earth? I mean, what, what kind of fascinated you about the idea of space because normally most people think space and they're just like cool go to the moon explore you know what's out there in the universe but there's many different facets to it yeah that's right and uh, for me personally uh was a combination of uh, not only technology wise it's, it was the state of the art what was done for space or for military was was always at the forefront of technology so space for me was uh, was a very attractive from the technology standpoint and then, of course, the other thing that was really attractive, uh, attractive to me was the fact that the space is, um, you know, is, is the large, I mean, how large and vast it is, is the fascination that, you know, we're in this world, we believe that we are quite somebody, but at the end of the day, we're minuscule in this universe. And, uh, and that perspective and the, you know, the infinity and concept and the, the you know, how vast everything is, is it's always 
you know, some of the philosophical questions that go around my head um, many, many times. And, and you think about, well, how, what is in a space that, that really is so fascinating and is simply the vastness of the universe. That's super cool. I think there's so many questions that remain unanswered. Um, and I don't think our can be explained honestly, um, because you're thinking in such a different way than we're used to. We're so used to thinking, you know, in the 3d and not thinking about anything outside of that. And I think that space opens up so many more, I mean, just holes for that to be able to explore and deep, deep rabbit holes. Um, so, okay. So you worked in space for a little bit and then when did you actually come to the U S I came to the U.S. Uh, eight years ago. I was at the time working in uh, in Chile, so I had moved from the Netherlands to Chile, and um, I was hired to lead the uh, technical development and the uh, operations of, of a project which was publicly funded and uh, was intended to look at ecological regions in the United States. So, looking at ecological continental scale ecology, so identifying patterns of. Uh, what happens in Northern Oregon, how it affects uh, the Southern states, for example. So looking at the big mm -hmm. ship, the big gradients across the, the, the continent. So I ended up leading the entire project and, uh, and it was a fascinating experience going to visit uh, all the places in this country, which are absolutely phenomenal. Like everyone, everywhere from Barrowing, Alaska, down to Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and, you know, all the continental US. It was a fascinating experience. On the flip side, you know, working for public institutions is always a very slow thing. So at the end of the day, I got tired of the bureaucracy and the slowness and sometimes the uh, ineffectiveness of, uh, of working for public institutions mm -hmm. and um, jump out. <laughs> so what, what did you notice in terms of patterns? I mean, if you can dive a bit deeper into what were the ecological patterns that were, you were looking for? Was it you know, heat, was it weather, was it everything? Uh, what was kind of your main focus and, and what did you kind of find in, in those patterns? So that project in particular was looking at the impacts of climate change. I mean, it was very premature at the time, but you were already seeing exceptional circumstances like uh, very hot in Alaska, the permafrost melting. And uh, we already saw the, uh, the indications of that action of uh, climate change at the, uh, you know, early in the, in the project while we were constructing and building things. The uh, other thing that is looking at is the use of the land. So land use, invasive species, and the, um, you know, the whole aspect of uh, combining all the ecological parameters and the uh, impacts uh, and uh, everything that it's making our, let's say, ecosystem change and evolve. So we're looking for indicators which were indicating trends, indicating changes, indicating early alerts and warnings to what could happen if uh, invasive species are coming into the southern tip of Florida, how they, you know, how this, they come into the country. I mean, they, there's a sort of, uh, there's a very convoluted thing, ecology, and, um, but it was looking at mostly for trends and early indications of how things are changing because mm -hmm. they're changing. Yeah. And if you can dive a little bit deeper on, on how things are changing, I think there's, there's, a lot of news and there's a lot of articles and there's a lot of back and forth, back and forth. This is saying that is being said. I mean, you were kind of more feet on the ground there. What did you kind of notice in terms of trends? I, I noticed a couple of things. I mean, I noticed that the, uh, the project was uh, very focused on the uh, scientific aspects of it. 
Um, however, uh, what I think it was uh, significant, uh, a significant gap at the time was the, uh, the, the distance between the scientific goals and the, uh, and the impacts to society. So how that affects to you and me, how do we benefit of having that infrastructure uh, producing data out there? And what, it, that it, what is that we gain in? Uh, I remember a conversation with one of the, uh, of the leaders of the um, Obama's administration, and uh, he was asking for questions which were societal questions and how can we use things? And I looked at my peers and my colleagues and they were looking down into the science and into the, to the aspects of the next paper and, and finding a trend and, and that was fantastic. But, you know, we didn't get answers to, you know, the other levels and there, there was a gap, a distance between the science and the, uh, and the, and the real impacts in the, into our lives. How can we incorporate all that data, all, all that knowledge into, and convert it into, into policy, into things that help us uh, becoming more resilient. And, um, and as you can see, it's, uh, we're, we're still trying to figure it out, right? Totally. Yeah. And I, I love that you said resiliency because it's such, I think it's such an important word for what's kind of going on. We have to be resilient. We have to innovate change. Um, it's not just going to happen naturally, or it's not going to come from a place of people stopping consuming or traveling. And, you know, it's, it's hard to make that society shift when society is going a direction, but how do we innovate in a space to actually make ourselves a little bit more resilient? And I think data plays a huge role in that. Um, and I'd love if you could dive in a little bit on just the idea of, of what data can do and the power of data, because we've been collecting numbers for decades. Um, but the speed at which we can correlate these points and the speed at which we can actually make better hypotheses and, and even test them, um, it's, it's kind of rapidly changing how we, how we actually approach problems. Yeah, that's, that's a phenomenal conversation to initiate because data is everything. I mean, if you think about knowledge, we know because we, we have seen, we have evidence of what's going on. And until you have it in, in a form and fashion that you can do something with it, it's, it's simply an observation that is gone. So data has enabled um, the capturing of information and the storing information for future use and for future uh, understanding. I do think that you know, not every piece of data is useful and relevant. There's a lot of uh, data that is superfluous or data which is uh, duplicated, but there is a relevance of understanding and gathering key and strategic data that allows us to understand what we're living and how we should be adapting. Uh, so one of the things is that we've been measuring things for forever and in different ways and fashions. A couple of things. One is that the events are changing, the climate is changing and at a rapid pace. I mean, <laughs> the hurricanes are becoming more and more prominent and more frequent. Uh, um, heat waves in uh, uh, cold weather patterns. And I mean, everything is kind of upside down. We're beginning to be very, very um, dramatic. And the one thing that all this past data collection is that it was good for the purpose of the past uh, habits, which were like very steady. Uh, the situation was more of a status quo. Yes, it was increasing, but not rapidly increasing. It was not changing as drastically as, as it is today. So we need to adapt and get data, which is helping us understanding this rapid change and what is coming up. And for that is, I'm a firm believer that we have to to get more data in the areas where 
can really help us, you know, make a change and make an impact into the way we live uh, and we're going to be living in the future. And so would you say that kind of how you interpret data is more the important side of it? I mean, data collection obviously is important, but as you mentioned, a lot of that data is either superfluous or just not not necessary to, to finding answers. Um, is that kind of where the human expertise comes in? Because we put a lot of a lot of focus on, you know, AI and quantum computing and stuff to be able to, you know, do simulations and see what see what could be happening. But is it more human of what are the things that we are putting into this equation? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, a saying that um, when you have a model, garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you have uh, crappy data to play with, you're not going to have very good results. So it's it, when you look at the usage of data, it's important to think about how that data has been collected. Uh, where is it collected? How often is, is it being collected? Is it being collected in a way that can be compared? Because I have uh, you know data of one color, data of another color, data of a third color. And when you try to mix them together, there's room for gaps and interpretation and, and errors and, and lack of accuracy. So it's important to have a standard way of, uh, of measuring uh, the observables that we're looking at uh, so that we can implement models which are gonna become more accurate and more certain. And then of course, the extent of where we collect data is really, really important. So we think of, um, you know, for example, we're looking at water uh, at the coastlines and 96,000 of coastline in the United States are, are covered by 225 active uh, NOAA stations recording tidal changes. If uh, you think about a tidal search, you just need one inch additional, one more inch of water at one place to get flooded. We don't need, you know, like a foot. You need one more inch just to get running water in your streets, running water in your in your in your property. So having a very small number of places where you're collecting data doesn't give you the ability to to look into you know, what happens in your neighborhood, what happens in your property. So you really need to increase the, the extent of collection of, uh, of data. Okay, so I, I, I want to go a little bit deeper on on this concept. Um, one, one inch to actually make, I mean, a flood essentially. Um, I think most most people assume that, you know, any type of tidal wave or, or increase in flooding, flash flooding, that it, it, it has to be a lot of water, but you mentioned one inch. Why? Why is that the case? So let me, let me go back. Uh, when I moved to Colorado uh, 2013, we had a very uh, intense uh, uh, rain, which led to flash floods. And uh, we got um, my neighborhood, I live very close to the mountains in a canyon. And there was this little creek with a very, very small bridge which became a, a raging river, uh, very wide, very deep, and very savage. And, um, and that water actually came through the, the, uh, the entire neighborhood, affected my neighbors across the street. And I was uh, very, very fortunate because my house had a creek along the side, which actually was filling up, filling up, filling up, but it didn't fill up to the top so that water never came into my property. I was looking and observing what, what was going on and you people were putting sandbags and barriers and, and yeah, water was coming in, but just one more inch of water makes the water strong enough to actually overcome the sandbags, get into basements, get into places. 
and um, water doesn't stop. I mean, it doesn't ask for permission. It will come if it's if if it's massive, it's it will come. So that one inch of uh, really made a difference between me and my neighbors. Uh, my neighbors got about twelve foot of uh, water in their in their houses. Yeah, I, I dug out the uh, the mud and, and and stuff from their places, but my house I was very fortunate. It didn't it didn't flood, and because that ditch was one inch deeper than the amount of uh, I mean literally it was it was really at the verge of uh, spilling over, but wow. it didn't. Wow, that's I mean, I mean sad to sad to hear like what happened with your neighbors, and obviously very fortunate for you that it didn't happen. But yeah, I mean one inch is that does make a huge difference. Think about a glass of water. If you put a little bit too much, of course it's going to spill, right? Mm -hmm. So you yeah. have to, to remember that. So what you were working on now, um, let's, let's get into what Divirod is all about. Tell me why, why you came up with the idea and, and what is the need? Is, and, and I know you touched on that a little bit with, with kind of all of the NOAA monitors and there needs to be more data points to actually paint a better picture. So if you can dive in a little bit about Divirod, why you started it, what was your mindset around it and why is it a need? Yeah, so Divirod, my, my company Divirod, I, I started up uh, back in 2016 out of the urge of um, understanding better water at large. Moisture in the ground, precipitation, uh, water in reservoirs, ability to access water, ability to control water when it's you know in wild form like uh, the flooding events the coastal erosion you name it water is everywhere and affects us all and um, to me it was appalling to see that uh, we had technologies which were able to tell us that you know you ordered a pizza you can see the pizza you can track the pizza across the city getting to your plate you can call for an uber and get to know if the guys around the corner or not and even which side of the street is going to pick you up. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what we can do with technology. However, if you think about water, there is not a single place where you can go and say, I understand what's going on. I know that maybe in 30 minutes, I might have to lift up the, uh, the computers from my basement because I need to put them somewhere else because I'm going to get flooded. We have absolutely no idea. Uh, there is a lot of modeling uh, right there. And uh, they're all based on, again, the sparse amount of data collection points, uh, which is insufficient, especially with, you know, when you're talking about the changes that we're experimenting nowadays. So I wanted to, to get to be able to provide that vision, that, that map of water, of the dynamics of water, understanding where it goes, how it comes, how high it is, it's, uh, is it available over there or is not? Is it forming water in the mountains when we have a snowpack? Uh, how much is gonna be able to, to, to hit my, my glass of water at the end of the day? So that was uh, something really, really deep in me uh, from my early days. And um, I decided to, to get on this cruise and um, founded Divarota back in 2016 already five years from now. Wow. And, and I think water's becoming a bigger topic now. Um, but I would imagine it was a smaller topic in 2016, a lot more niche. Um, what do you think is the biggest challenge that we have with water? Is it the amount of water? Is it the usage of water, the consumption of water? W what is the, 
what is the problem that water is having right now? That's a very good question. I, I would I would like to uh, I would correct you if I may, Steve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, water has been always a big topic. Unfortunately, the awareness of for the importance of water is oftentimes uh, misregarded, and um, not only for water consumption, but also as, as explained, all the flooding events and, and stuff like that. People who live by the water understand that water is is super beautiful, but at the same time could be scary. Um, so the awareness now now that all the press is talking about the drought in California, the uh, the drought in the Colorado River, uh, unprecedented this, unprecedented that. Uh, it's simply just more propaganda, quote unquote, more advertisement, more awareness altogether, which are making the population to become more um, susceptible about, you know, water is important. Um, the thing that I like about doing with water, for me, the importance is and that's why Diverod is a little bit of a special company in, in the water space. We're not looking at water in any other form that water as a liability. What are the water risks? And water risks could, could be the drought, could be massive amount of water, could be uh, the scarcity, could be the transportation, could be how it affects your property, how it affects uh, operations of businesses. It's uh, water extends as a liability in many, many levels. And that's the niche that we have uh, taken. So let's look at water and a massive scale and good understanding of how this could impact or organizations, corporations, businesses at large in, in, in running their, their operations. Of course, uh, apart from the businesses, how this affects the, the citizens and you know, people who live by the water. Uh, can they have access to much better data, much better understanding, better forecast, better, better uh, predictions that you know can help us prepare, can help us increase that resiliency against uh, water risks. And so what's the solution that you guys came up with in starting this in 2016? So the solution was uh, twofold. First of all, we needed to come up with a method to capture data in a very standard way, which is make, giving us the ability to compare data from one place to another. Um, making it cost-effective so that it can scale. And, um, and last but not least, uh, coming up with a delivery mechanism, which is uh, you know, providing access to the, uh, to the data. And uh, our business model runs into uh, data as a service. And uh, depending on the data needs that you have, you will subscribe to one of different tiers of services. Um, we don't think it's important for people to understand how instrumentation works. Let us solve this, uh, this problem for you. Just focus on what matters to you, which is you know, how water as a risk can be understood by me or by my corporation and how can I get myself ready to anticipate and plan ahead of time. Got it. And so you guys basically developed a network of sensors that can that can paint a better picture of what water does, essentially is what you guys did. Yeah, so we built this infrastructure and we, we keep building the infrastructure uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, which is a network in itself. It's like uh, when you think about the cell phone that you have, you don't put up, uh, you, don't, you don't buy the services for getting a cell tower in your garden. You actually get your cell phone and then you subscribe to the service of using your phone and the data on your phone. Uh, we're gonna do. We're doing exactly the same. We're creating, building up this network, which is geographically extended, 
and uh, we have um, uh, intend to cover as much as we can of the uh, not only the U.S. but uh, we're looking. We have eyes into East Asia, eyes into Europe. We've already put uh, and deployed uh, units in both Europe and Japan, and um, all you know, in many states here in the United States. And we intend to to expand as much as we can, whatever water is a problem. And so how has that kind of helped? I mean, what's the what's the data that you guys have learned so far, whether it's the amount of data or the quality of that data? has Have you guys gained some insight around the usage of water outside of, you know, just these, these raw numbers? Does it paint a better picture of what the traditional model of data has been? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is to augment um, the data availability. So there is all this publicly available data. Uh, there's all this satellite imagery that is available. And as I said before, it's, it's, it's difficult to intercompare. And everybody who's in modeling understands what I'm talking about. So what we're trying to do is to augment the uh, availability of, of data by creating a new data layer, which provides additional insights of water as, um, as a liability, as a risk. And that is the mechanism by which uh, you can come up with enabling additional services. Like uh, you think about, for example, the uh, when Google Maps uh, came alive, Waze introduced the traffic concept and boom, traffic enabled transportation and logistics and so on and so forth. We wanna do the same. We wanna enable that action uh, related to the, uh, you know, to the insights of water. And uh, thus far, if you try to look for water data, it's really scarce, it's really difficult, it's very varied and it's very different. And it's taken out of, you know, archaic uh, mechanisms like uh, putting a stick on the mat to a very costly uh, uh, large infrastructure at the harbor, just looking at a single point of, uh, on, on the map. So it's, it's really, it's really uh, an opportunity for us to, to make an impact and to change the way people are looking at water. And how does that help the, I guess, the value for whether you're a company, a municipality, a private citizen, what are the actionable things that I guess they get out of knowing this data? Is it how to use that water more efficiently if they're a farm? Is it how much water they can expect around them when they produce things? I mean, it, what are kind of those tangible things that I guess people can get out of aggregating this data? Yeah, some of the use cases that we have, uh, we have one product called RoofWatch. This is for corporations that they have large warehouses and you know large flat roof, rooftops. And those rooftops are accumulating water apart from dirt and, and other stuff. But they accumulate a lot of water. They see the rain, the precipitation, and they have to be cleaned and uh, free of debris so that the water runs uh, through the drains uh, properly. So our product is providing these people with a constant monitoring, a constant roof watch uh, 24 seven that is providing an alert. If water is pulling, is forming on top of, the, of, the, uh, of a drain. So they had a problem with the blockage in the, in the drain. So they don't have to be constantly going up to the roof. They just go whenever it's needed and they can take an action. Um, you can also plan, uh, if you look at the data in the immediate, what I would call the, uh, the immediate need, is taking an action uh, like unblocking uh, a drain uh, on a rooftop or putting a floodgate in a, in a certain place. Then you have the longer term risks that we deal with, which is as you understand how things are occurring, you look back, you look into the trends, you can then start planning, what else will I do differently this year 
to minimize all the impacts that I've seen last year. And then you can take action on those things. So RoofWatch is a good example. Uh, we have another one, uh, which we call Divirot uh, Water Watch, which is looking at um, um, all the water in reservoirs and rivers, uh, fluctuations of, of uh, water levels uh, to the negative and to the positive um, all across the country. Then we have another one, which is Coastal Watch. Uh, we, everything is watched because this is what we do. We watch and we provide you that service. So we're looking into tidal changes, wave activity, coastal erosion, and everything that could impact coastal communities. And if you're a real estate developer and um, <clears throat> you're gonna develop an area, of course, you want to know with a new normal, <laughs> the new climate uh, situation, what is it that I have to do in order to prevent uh, water coming from, from the sea into my, into my property? Got it. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And, and I guess from a data standpoint, that, that really helps because, I mean, even from, from the roof watch standpoint, I think a lot of people might forget that water is actually very heavy. And, you know, when you think you go get a gallon of water at the store, you know, you, five of those are, you know, you're holding quite a bit of weight. And when you put that across the roof of a structure, specifically a flat one, that can be a lot of weight on the roof of a structure. So I'd imagine for commercial, it actually has quite a bit of application in terms of safety and, and sustainability of the building as well. Totally. And that's important to the, uh, to the person who's trying to get an immediate action out of it. But now think about all these people, all these data points in aggregate, how much information this is providing you. Like, for example, we're... We're now deploying in Florida a huge extensive network. We want to hit the number of 300 units on, on, on the ground uh, before the end of the year in Florida so that we every time a hurricane comes by, we can track the hurricane, we can track the event, we can monitor before, during, and after. So we can provide useful information for you know, insurance purposes, for uh, rehabilitation purposes, for reconstruction, you know, for all the uh, all the actions that are taken after uh, an event of this kind. I mean, I think that's a huge that's a huge benefit um, because it's you think about building you know any type of levee or anything to block the rise of water. You can actually anticipate in a more accurate way where that's going to happen, rather than just it happened here this time, but next time we know it's going to happen probably in this area based on the trends. Exactly. Exactly, and that's all. And that's the beautiful thing of having data. If you don't have data, you just don't know. You, you cannot even anticipate. I mean, how our knowledge has increased is because we have accumulated experiences. So you have to think about data in the same way. You're accumulating data to build that experience, to build that knowledge, to build the awareness. And with that massive amount of intelligence, you can transform it into what's going to happen next. How do I have to behave? What do I have to do differently? How can I become more resilient, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that there's a lot of talk right now just in terms of agriculture and water availability from that side. That I think has has more of an effect on, on society than a lot of people see because if you don't have as much water, you can't grow as many crops. If you don't have as many crops, prices go up on food and then that hits the consumer on that end. And I think it's a little bit of a long tail of when that actually does happen. But where's the benefit do you see in being able to monitor the water specifically for agriculture? Because that's such a huge part of society. Yeah, that's, uh, that's been uh, in our minds for quite a long time. And um, I'm talking about Divi Rod. 
we actually started thinking about, can we improve the way uh, farmers irrigate their fields to, to get a, a more efficient uh, crop in the year, to get a better yield and to get you know, their, the quality of the crop increased so that they can sell at premium prices and so on and so forth. The difficulty with farmers is that the small farmer has a main struggle, which is surviving the system. So if he doesn't have a good harvest, he's broke. I mean, and, and farmers, unfortunately, the ones who are sustaining us uh, at large are not very profitable. And actually people who are doing this because they, they believe in, in, in providing to the, through the supply chain. But from a business standpoint, farming is, is not very lucrative. So they don't want to spare on water or fertilizers or any, anything that they need to do in order to save their crop. So it becomes a little bit of a chicken and egg situation with farming. Um, of course, if you look at the large uh, farming companies, uh, and then you're talking about the giants of agriculture, not mentioning names now, but uh, all, these, uh, all these companies, of course, if they reduce their water consumption or their water bill, it has a big impact on their balance sheet. So they really want to do something about it. But at large, I think, um, all the water rights, uh, all the irrigation permits, all the irrigation rights, um, it's something that is needing a, a, a big revision and a big, uh, big focus of attention, but it's not happening. And until the point that people are really accounting for, okay, we understand that water is a commodity, it's not, it's not a given, it's actually a very limited resource then we'll see things like um, you know water being traded in Wall Street, people litigating because, uh, or states litigating because you're consuming more water than necessary out of the Colorado River or out of the reservoir XYZ. So we're gonna be, we're gonna be looking at a, a big change in that aspect. And I think um, platforms like our platform actually can provide a very good service to that. But again, it's at the intersection, it's at the collision between the public interest and the private interest. So it's a different, difficult area to, to get into. I was having a conversation a few weeks ago with somebody about energy and how, you know, the, the idea of living completely off grid. So that way, if there's any private and public, you know, combativeness going on, you, you're kind of free of that because you were as off grid as possible. Do you think there's a solution that Divirod can play in, in, providing the data to know if somebody can be off-grid with water. So if they get a certain amount of water on their property, would they know how, how much they're getting in, in a way that they could collect the water and know that they could live off of it? I think uh, Divirod, what we will provide in the, in the, in going forward is a very good accountability of the, of, of the water available. So we have a unique accuracy. We measure levels with a millimeter precision, and that provides us... Um, a very good understanding of um, how to treat water as a commodity. So if you think about, um, if you think about one millimeter of water across a large reservoir, a thousand acre reservoir, and let's say, let's take an inch times a, a thousand acres. It's a lot of water. It's millions and millions of gallons of water. And, and this amount of water is actually has a tax price. And people don't understand that when they're opening their tap, Actually, that water that comes apparently for free is not for free, and it has a value, and it will have more, even more value going forward because of the scarcity of water. 
I think we can play definitely, and we're preparing ourselves to do so, a very important role in accounting and bringing, translating water into that financial asset that people own or don't own. And that's where uh, our technology actually and our services can provide, uh, can give a lot of uh, return to the to our customers in that regard. Nice. And and how does your technology scale? So, I mean, obviously the the units talk to each other. You have constant data, but as you know, five ten years down the road, how how do you stay relevant? Because I mean, it's almost like you know, you try and use an iPhone four now it's not going to work very well. How does that work in terms of your technology? How, how can it be scalable over the years? That's, that's a super interesting, and I'm going to be a little bit sarcastic here. <laughs> so let's take the, the case of Bob. Bob goes to the reservoir every morning to look at a stick in the, in the reservoir and gets a, a note on his notepad and, and mm-hmm. puts that data onto Excel sheet. And then it's further translated into the state. And people in the state are, taking, are using this data point taken by Bob every morning. How does it scale? So we have survived all this long with a Bob kind of thing and, uh, and very archaic uh, technologies to account for water. Mm-hmm. Our scalability is actually astronomical compared to that, just to begin with. Off the plate, in five years from now, when we have a pretty in large coverage of uh, geographical coverage, plus all the history that we're gonna be accumulating in terms of data availability. Our scalability going forward is gonna go growing into different regions, going into different markets, uh, because the power of a network of, uh, of when you start collecting data out of a network of this kind, you're thinking about, I'm gonna get this data and this is gonna be showing me this. This is what you know. But the most interesting thing is what you don't know that is gonna come out of that data. So the type of trends, the type of insights that this massive collection of water uh, data and, and information is going to provide us, it just has it has to have its own secrets, its own new use cases, and people we're going to make it, you know, we're going to make it so that people could, could actually come up with new use cases using this data, and that's what we want to do is to enable all that, um, you know, projection, all that. Uh, the scalability of markets and the scalability of coverage. And heck yeah, we're gonna be relevant five years from now and, and 50 years from now. So my intent and the intent of everybody in the company is to leave a legacy and to become you know, the, the person or the company that they, you associate with when you think about water. I love that. I really love that. And and it's so interesting. You mentioned, you know, Bob measuring something every single day, because I mean, when I was growing up, my, my grandfather had always had this piece of plastic over the edge of his balcony in, in California, and it would capture the water. And every single day he would write down how much water. And he, he had data trends of 30 years of water at that property of how much he got. But yeah, to be able to have that from thousands of places and to be able to get the data and have it be millimeter accurate, um, because who knows if you measured it at the same time every day, who knows if it had been warm on a summer day and some of it evaporated, like that, that accuracy that you guys are able to provide can actually paint a better picture of water, which I think is, is so helpful. You collect a lot of data, I mean, also using satellite technology. So there's a little bit of still space involved in what you guys do. Um, so you've kind of kept a toe in into space, if you will. 
Yeah, we, we actually, our technology is very sleek and um, the way we capture data is, uh, is actually has, um, has a two components. One is uh, we're levering on the existing satellites which just are transmitting uh, signals all across, uh, around the planet uh, 24 seven. And those signals carry an energy. So what we're doing is to form a radar with our instrument and those satellites. And we take the satellite as the emitter of that radar. And as it bounces off the ground, anything water related is gonna pick up, pick up uh, some sort of a signature, physical signature of what we're seeing as an observable which is then captured by our um, receivers, our, our instrumentation. So we're, we're, we have our system can be considered as dozens of satellites out there bombarding the earth with energy. And we're listening to the echoes of those energies everywhere that we have a foot on the ground. And that is very interesting because we don't have to launch more satellites. I, I hate to say, but I don't like the fact of you know, people sending satellites out there. We're going to be in a, you know, in a wally situation very soon if we're not careful putting junk out there. Um, and I'm, I'm talking somebody who's been working in space uh, for quite a quite a long time, but I don't want to see that happening. All these micro constellations and mega constellations for, we're going to pay the price for that going down the road. But we don't have to put any additional infrastructure in space, and we have yet a unique resource that we're levering on. All these satellites providing us energy to to capture the uh, the echoes of water on the ground, and yes, we're going to be quote unquote deploying quite a, an extensive number of uh, instrumentation on on the ground. But our instrumentation fits in the palm of of my hand. Can be put on a rooftop. You don't even see it from the outside. It's very stealth and um, and very easy to install. So we we are actually um, scaling that very nicely. That's that's really cool. And I, I love that you touched on the amount of satellites and that you guys don't need more. Because I, I don't know if many people realize how many satellites are actually going around our Earth 24-7. I mean, when you when you go out on a, on a really clear night, you can you can look up and every once in a while you can see a satellite coming across the sky and you're like, wow, that's really cool. But you don't realize that there are thousands more of them that we don't see i would i'm just curious on on diving a little bit deeper on the on the idea of just how how much is actually out outside of our atmosphere right now i'm going to give you another example in comparison because people will say well the space is huge i mean come on and i will tell you yes it's very unlikely that we're going to get covered the, the sky with satellites unless we do something really really bad however Think about you're in a pristine beach somewhere in the, let's say Costa Rica, beautiful country. So you're in a pristine beach and then you see like a floating bottle and another floating bottle. And you say like crap, this pristine beach should not even have a plastic thing on it. But yet I'm seeing that thing floating out there. So we have to think it's the same about a space. I mean, it's not a, um, you know, a, a a trash depot. It's, it's somewhere that that we're not going to be dumping uh, junk on the space uh, because it's infinite. We have to preserve what we have around ourselves and, and be very effective at what we're launching or what not launching. Um, the same as we're preserving our coastals, uh, coastal areas and our oceans by not throwing garbage on the ocean. 
uh, it's exactly the same. Yes, it's a huge ocean. We're not going to see that, but you know, more and more we're noticing now the plastic influence, uh, poor sea turtles getting entangled into nets, into plastic bags. And yeah, I mean, you can only solve the problem that you kind of can see, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. And so, of course, you know, forty years down the road, you're going to be, oh man, that was a poor decision. Why do we do that? But is that kind of what you guys are aiming for? Is to kind of be able to paint a picture that, you know, you can look back and almost predict forward and in a way that is a little bit more reliable, not so much just let's see if this works and let's try and figure it out later if, if it comes up with more problems. In Spain, we say you have to grab the bull by the horns, right? And, and I take that to the limit. When I see that this problem that we have in front of us, which is the water availability, the water risks, water's liability in general, what we really need to do is essentially face it and say, okay, we have this model of saying, stop guessing, get a, go and measure it. Go do, go do get the actual data. Why do you have to guess? I've seen models of this property, uh, you know, in flood watches and, you know, flood maps that have been provided by modeling uh, people. And according to that, my house was flooded in 2013. They have no clue. They, they don't have data to actually build those models. So we want to say, stop guessing, put a, a monitoring device. Let's understand what it is in the place that matters to you. If it is your dock, your pier, your, your property, you're next to a river, you're next to a reservoir, you're looking into the water that is providing massive amounts of drinking possibilities to, to, to communities, let's be serious about it. Let's just stop guessing. Let's do it proper. We have the technology. Let's use it. And so what can, what can somebody do that they want to understand water more? They want to be more passionate about it. How can, how can somebody, I don't know, take action on, on their end, even in a small way, what can people do that, that kind of gives them a, a tangible way to move forward in this whole process? So one thing that we're doing in order to deploy in Florida, for example, is to actually ask for people who really are experiencing problems with water. And we're asking for help. We're happy to provide free uh, shipping and devices so that we can put them in their in their places. If it's you know, if it's a real location for for us to deploy, so we are open to um, to actually people just contacting us and, and say, hey, I got this problem. This is we see this recurrent. We'd like to to love. We'd love to to know more. Can you help us? And what we normally do is to our people are looking into the maps, looking into the area, and then we decide, okay, we can place here, here, here. Then we get you covered if we don't have you covered already. So we are we're actually opening up a marketing campaign at the moment, which is going to call for um, citizens in Florida to to actually contact us and uh, and participate and contribute to this network. Because yes, yes, we're a for-profit organization, but at the same time, we want to give back and uh, there's gonna be a number of services which are gonna be available. So let's just stop being protective about, oh, the data is mine. No, the data has to be shared, open source and, and, and being being available to, to do something more with it. Yeah, data has been a huge debate as of late in terms of who owns data, the privatization of data, um, specifically when it comes to, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and all that kind of stuff, data collection. But yeah, as you mentioned in this case, it's not, it's not personal data. It's not, 
it's not anything having to do with the person. It's, it's actually helping your community in, in such a more meaningful way that that kind of data sharing, I think, I mean, people can get behind that because it's, it's something that's going to, going to help people at the end of the day. And it won't just, you know, like, yes, would, will it, you know, enable you guys to profit more and grow? Of course. But that, that's the point of having a business that you hope is going to grow. Um, but at the end of the day, you're not doing it at the expense of others. You're actually providing a service that helps others. And I think that that's a very important distinction for people to understand when it comes to data. There, there are different forms of data. And I think that data right now is getting such, it's getting slammed so hard because the way people understand data is that it's everything about them. Um, but it's, it's really a global thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting comparison. When we are talking to, uh, for example, a city, and the city says, hey, but we own the data. The data is ours. You, you cannot do anything that, with that data and say, okay. So I'll tell you the, the next thing. Have somebody paid you the rights to use the data that they collect from satellites? So the satellite is passing every week over your heads and is collecting a picture. Has somebody paid you the right to get that picture? Not at all. So who owns the water levels? Who owns the tidal data? Who owns the water, you know, the, the rate of precipitation? No one is, is collectively owned by everybody. I mean, it's not, e not even ownership. It's, we're here just like visitors in this world in, and our time is very limited compared to the, uh, to the extent of, uh, of the planet lifetime. So I would say people should stop worrying about um, owning data, but should they start thinking about sharing data and making contributions to things which are going to be reverting back into them yes through maybe services yes maybe through more better forecasting but in the long run it's a cycle of uh, of the business and and it's a cycle of uh, the benefit from what you do can have an impact on the road in my in my society and my community do you think that there's a vision in the future of where this particular type of data is decentralized to the point where nobody owns it, where, I mean, blockchain essentially, that it's that it's put on a public blockchain that nobody owns the data, but it's verified and, and kind of just lives forever? Yes. And, um, you know, our data is essentially mutable. And uh, that's why I was talking about before about the account of, accounting of data. And... Um, it's traceable to the origin and it's traceable. It's, it's, it's a perfect candidate for blockchain and it's one of other technologies that we're gonna incorporate going forward. So is this something that um, would be owned by no one or by us or by difficult to say? I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit lost uh, to be honest with all the trends in, 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 in data ownership because things are changing rapidly and uh, they're going to change even more rapidly going forward. Definitely. I'm, I'm glad that you guys are just thinking about that in general, just because I believe it's, um, just from my perspective, I think it's internet 2.0. It's, it's going to enable so much more availability of technology and also accessibility in, in the sense of newer solutions that work faster. I mean, once once the blockchains obviously get to a point where they can handle the speed and stuff, but a few, few last questions, um, you know, one of which, do you remember your first um, sustainable purchase that you made um, consciously where you said, this is a sustainable product. I'm going to purchase it because I want to make an effort to be more conscious about my purchases. I actually don't remember. I don't have an example to give you, but 
you know, I I I come from um, I come from the south of Spain, where I used to go to the market, local market, which is like a market. It's nothing. It's not a farmers market. It's not like a event on Saturdays. It's the daily market where the guy who goes out and fishes and bring the fish to the uh, to his own stand, or the guy who goes out and has his field and is selling fruit and vegetables. So maybe that's why I don't remember because I might have been doing it all my life, <laughs> buying mm -hmm. to the local producers and, and sustaining the local economy uh, without even noticing it, without even mm -hmm. thinking about it. I, I, I do think that that's, uh, you know, I, when I came to, to the US for the first time and, you know, my landing was in Boulder and I went to Whole Foods and uh, it cannot be more organic than that, right? <laughs> Whole Foods in Boulder. And, um, and I came across this thing of, oh, you gotta buy this, it's organic. So everything is organic, isn't it? Like <laughs> it's not produced. So I, I have to say I've been uh, a little bit spoiled to have access to, let's say sustainable normal practices rather than mass production practices. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's why I, you caught me off guard. Like, when did you buy it? Yeah, I think I've been buying all my life. I, I, that's great. I mean, yeah. And it's, I think the picture of sustainability, a lot of people miss out on there that, you know, it local is sustainable, um, because it doesn't have to travel as far supporting a local community is, is such a decision in itself to be sustainable and, and also, you know, buying things that will actually last. I think that's also sustainable, you know, just because something was made with minimal impact on the environment, but if you're replacing it every two years, that, that adds up too. So I, I just think the picture of sustainability is so much different than a lot of people paint it. It's not just the thing with the label or the thing that was made out of recycled materials, which are both, which are all good at the end of the day, but it's also thinking, you know, how can you do it locally? How can you just live a life that is just more sustainable? Definitely. I think sometimes we just purchase more than we really need. And, um, you know, um, my, my daughters are, are telling, and telling me and my wife, you guys should buy more clothes to say, why? <laughs> oh, because this is like a very old house. This is like a 20 years old, right? I say, yes. So what? It's, it's, it's okay. You know, we don't need to have any new addition. We bought, um, you know, we buy stuff because we need it, not because we need to replace it. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a very good, uh, good point that you're making, Steve. Uh, it's not only about buying some kind of label product. It's about, you know, not buying too much, not not mm -hmm. consuming too much, and well, uh, and becoming more sustainable. At the end of the day, fashion is very cyclical anyway. So if you keep that thing for 20 years, it'll probably come back into style anyway. And everybody's going to be loving it. Where's your favorite place to enjoy nature um, and to kind of get immersed in it and enjoy the world that we do live in? And I know you've traveled a lot. So this is, this is, a, this is a harder question for sure. And if it's a few places, that's totally fine. Well, I think one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been is, is, is in the Southern Patagonia in, uh, in Chile. Patagonia is a very extensive place, lots of dramatic uh, natural geography and glaciers and mountains and rivers. I mean, it, everything is big and, 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 and dramatic. And the nice thing about it is that this is still and it's not spoiled by lots of tourism. It's just, it's, it's going to be spoiled because people are traveling more and more nowadays. Um, but uh, if I had to choose the place, uh, that would be it, uh, Patagonia in Chile. 
Wow. Yeah, I have not been down there. Uh, it's on my bucket list. And funny enough, it is not, you are not the only person to mention that area on, on this podcast, which is very interesting to hear. There are a lot of beautiful places on this earth, but to have a place that kind of really holds that power is is pretty special. That's cool. Thanks so much for being a part of this podcast. I, I really enjoyed having you on it and and to be able to talk about water in such a real and and tangible way um in such a data-driven way um i think a lot of times we we just look at what's happening in the world and that is what it is but you know to have data that supports it and the fact that divirod is providing a solution to all of this um and and providing a platform for people to actually build more solutions in the future i just think i mean hats off to you for for coming up with the idea and, and really going after it and owning it and i just think that's it's really commendable for sure. What are the ways that people can reach out to Divirod, can get units, can get in contact with you to learn more? I mean, what what's kind of the best way to get in contact with you guys? Well, our website is uh, is the best entry point, uh, divirod.com, D-I-V-I-R-O-D.com. And um, there is a lot of uh, possibilities to click contact us, contact us, contact us. <laughs> and... Um, if you live in Boulder, just uh, reach out and um, you know give me a bus. I'm happy to take coffee now that we that we're let's say freer to to do those things. Awesome. Well, cool. Thanks again for being on the show and excited to kind of share this with the world. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for having me here. I really appreciate it, Steve. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. Javier's story is pretty amazing, and I'm super grateful that I got to share it with you. I encourage everybody to check out Divirod on their website. And if you're in an area where you are concerned about water um, or where they're kind of focused, which is like Florida right now, sign up on their beta testing program and get involved. Uh, you're only going to be providing data that's really going to help the community. Privatized data, it's safe, but it's really going to help in this understanding of what the bigger picture of water looks like. So thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.